Well, hello there. Welcome to the Inspired Minds podcast. My name is Jeff Watson, your gracious and grateful host. Thanks to my friend, Mr. Michael Lee Simpson and producer, Mr. Michael Lee Simpson, for getting these incredible people that I've been speaking to lately. They're all incredible. And I get to be the eternal student and I get to learn from these people. And it's fantastic. I've kind of realized that this podcast is sort of heading into uh, maybe a more clarified kind of theme. And that is simply storytelling and specifically divining meaning through storytelling. That's something that I've been kind of working on in my head for a while. And I think it's true. And specifically in art, that's where I like to head with these things. Um, quick thing about me, in case you haven't heard me blather on about me in the last eight episodes or 10 episodes or whatever it's been. Um, I am a uh, former slash kind of still musician. I was in a van for the entire 90s, basically, in some punk rock band and blah, blah, blah. And uh, then I ended up working at Warner Brothers Records and was an executive for 14 years and had wonderful times. And then I went through some pretty crazy shit, which flipped my perspective on life. And now I am a therapist to help others through traumas and various disorders. And I love it. Um, so this podcast apparently is growing. And my friend told me that we are indeed in about 14 countries. He said that was about two weeks ago. Who knows if they're already out and about out gracefully or not so gracefully. But I'm sticking with the list that I got in front of me now. The uh, What I'm going to do is each few episodes, I'm going to give an international high five. And the international high five is simply this. I'm going to call out a country. I'm going to talk about you. And it'll be a quick little bit. Here we go. The international high five begins with England, ladies and gentlemen, our mother country. In America here at least, and as I often do, I will play the national anthem, which many of you probably know. Here it comes. So, England, quick, uh, quick bunch of facts about you that I found interesting, first of all. The first king of England apparently made a law that says everybody has to be in bed by 8 p.m. I signed off on that, actually. <laughs> Cut a lot of crime down. Uh, children in the UK, apparently over five years, can consume alcohol at home or other private areas. Go figure. Um, and apparently England uh, cursed us all by inventing the speeding ticket in 1986, where they caught a gentleman going four times the speed limit. As the speed limit was only two miles an hour, he was fined for reaching a blazing speed of eight miles an hour. England, my hats are off to you. Anyway, so this leads me to the really important part of this podcast, uh, the fantastic interview I did with this uh, woman named Veronica Nickel. And Veronica is a line producer, producer. Um, she worked on Moonlight. She uh, has a, uh, a Netflix original series or a movie called Uncorked. It was fantastic. She was an MFA at Columbia University. And specifically, she had this, uh, this film called Stand Clear of the Closing Doors. And it's about a kid with autism, and I am aware of that disorder and a lot of other ones. So we talked about that and mental health, which is kind of my thing. Uh, but then we talked about like Groucho Marx and duck soup and how brilliant that was. And um, she, uh, in addition to uh, some of the things I mentioned, she also has this fantastic documentary out called Inhospitable. Inhospitable, and it is about the hospital's role in the rising cost of healthcare. And it's it's a really, really powerful documentary. Um, and we had a great time. Uh, and I, as always, I will say this. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did making it. Bye.
Well, hello, everyone. We have another episode, a fantastic interview that I'm extremely excited about. This is the great, I'm already saying great, Veronica, the great Veronica Nickel. Say hello. Hello. Thank you <laughs> Thank so you much for doing this. Um, you know, you Thank and you I were- Thank you for having me. Oh, this is a blast. Um, so there's, here's the first question I like to ask out of the gate to any, every interview I do, because I get great responses either way. And that is, what was the first thing that inspired you when you were a kid? Was it a book, TV show, movie, song? Maybe it's not the first one, but one of the earliest ones that you could remember that connected to you. Hmm. Well, I, I grew up in a, a movie house. So movies, I was always very connected to early on. And gosh, I mean, I, I grew up watching both a lot of black and whites, like um, the Philadelphia story mm. or, um, or the Marx brothers, <sighs> or just watching a lot of like old, old movies. Um, I, I feel like when TCM came out, when yeah. it first came out, like that was my mom's favorite channel. So I feel like we watched that a lot in the house. Um, so a lot of classics, um, but also just, I rem I remember I, this ages me, dates me. I don't know. But like when I first saw um, Back to the Future, that was my <laughs> first, I think, film that blew me away of like, took me really to a different, a different world, a different world. So um, I wasn't that young when it came out. I was, I mean, whatever. I think I was younger than 10. Mm -hmm. um, but movies, I always, I definitely always saw a story um, instead of music or dance which we did or anything like that it was definitely in our household movies were the thing to watch i gotta i gotta put a pin in a second to head back to this one because you brought up the marx brothers yeah i my god <laughs> night at the opera might be one of Holy my shit. favorite movies yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm like zeppo like all of a sudden i'm gonna play piano now for like a madman yeah, it's. I mean, they were brilliant for for their time, and Way and some of that has stood the test of time, I think, and the, and some of it has has stood. Some of it doesn't hold up so well, but no, but not at the opera. It's just it's their wit that they were bouncing because they were all vaudevillian guys. You know that. Yeah, exactly. So they just they knew how to do the circuit, and they knew how to just tell jokes over and over again. Because you kind of had to. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, and we're done. <laughs> Thanks for the interview. <laughs> done. See you. Bye. Have have a great day. <laughs> I'm good now. <laughs> um, but that's great. I really, I love asking that question. And it's interesting that you said that you find stories so more that's more so than music and all that. Can you pull on that thread for a second? Gosh, pull on the thread. I'm not quite sure how much more to pull. We, <laughs> um, even more so than television in my house. I, I remember when video stores kind of were, were a thing when we were young. Um, this was before Blockbuster, right? You would just go down to the local mom and pop video store and like I just remember wandering the aisles with my uh, sister we were each allowed to like pick a movie and mm. I, you know it really got me into covers of movies <laughs> and a lot of <laughs> yeah. times I can remember what the cover of an older movie is versus yeah. now where you don't see I mean you see art um but it, it doesn't stay with you the same way you used to walk down a row and really um know that cover art I eventually in college worked at a blockbuster video <gasps> so like yeah. Definitely have video store roots and, but like even just early, early, early days, that was what we did in my house. We would, you know, we didn't watch TV at night. We would put movies on every night and uh. we got to choose our movies and we would go every few days to the video store. And my dad, um, 
was a travel, like traveled a lot for work. So it was like dinners in front of the TV, watching movies was a, was like our favorite thing to do when he wasn't there. And I think that just stuck with me through my whole life through video, you know, like working at a video store and then eventually becoming a movie producer and working in the movies. It was something I had wanted to do, but didn't really know how to get there. But if you just keep following what you love, then I guess you eventually find your path. Isn't it great to have a through line through your life? <laughs> yes. A video right? store I mean, is definitely well, my through line. <laughs> I'm the same way. I, the greatest job I ever had is working at a video store when I was a kid. And it opened me up to like, you know, oh, there's David Lynch's Eraserhead or, yeah. you know, there's Yojimbo or all these, you know, Kurosawa and all these guys. Yeah, came absolutely. Well, especially when you work at one, because you get like, well, it wasn't unlimited, but it felt unlimited because I could just yeah. take so many home. And, you know, so you had to be less precious about what you watched. So you got to watch a lot more stuff. And yeah, I have a bit, a lot less so as I've gotten older, but I was more visual. So I would have almost like a photographic memory of the boxes of movie covers. <laughs> so I like would know what the movie cover, and usually that was their poster. Like I knew what they would look like. Even if I hadn't watched the movie, I could tell you kind of what yeah. the, what the cover looked like at one point in my life. Not so much now, but um, yeah. definitely used to be that way. So I, I, yeah. always connected to like movies and storytelling That's your that line. way. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of leads me to the other one or <laughs> one of many questions, but as a creative how do you find a story because it's kind of already out there or how does a story find you if you think about it? Yeah. So I've never, um, a story usually find me. I shouldn't say I've never found a story. They usually find me. Um, right. and as a producer, they can come to you in many ways. Um, but usually it's somebody pitching you a director or a writer director who's, um, pitching you to kind of come on board eventually in my career, I got an agent and then I got pitched through my agent. Um, and so it's a different in my, my journey and my experience as a producer, I have, um, not optioned like any material than found a writer than had it like that's hasn't been my journey. Um, so I've worked with content that was at least already drafted. I wouldn't say like everything I've ever worked with or on has been through drafts, even on films that I've worked on as a line producer, there have been definitely different versions um, as I've been involved in the process. Mm. So um, yeah. And producers, a lot of times I feel like producers are a little bit of an unsung hero in, uh, in the storytelling process. Um, And I do think that there are a lot of producers who, give bad notes and they give notes just to hear themselves talk. Um, But I think if you, I I was very fortunate. I went to Columbia university for grad school. And so that they're really known for story. And so I did a lot of screenwriting classes while I was there because that's what they have you do. And it just helped me flex the muscle of storytelling so that I understood the way to to work and talk with a writer about story and the way to think about story and structure and what, what may and may not work. And then, so that, that, that's like the creative producer side of that. And then there's a point where you get the story to a place where it feels like it's working. And then you have to do a pass just strictly as a producer of like, okay, well, we have to get rid of the bus with the chickens on top flying off the cliff. Like we can't do that. There's no explosions. We can't do like, okay, now we have to work with our limitations now that we've like written, 
and worked through kind of the larger story elements, right, for what we have. Um, and then that's the other way a producer is involved in the creative, right, um, sure. in writing that story. And then, of course, that continues while you're in production because everything changes and you lose things and don't get things and people drop out and whatever. So you have to continually shift how you're going to envision that story. And then you get into the editing process. And I have seen directors and editors do seven, eight very different cuts of a film. And you are there the whole time giving notes on every cut to say Mm -hmm. like this is or isn't working and we're losing this. This is an unspine. This is, you know, we're, we're getting away from this. We're losing this character. So those are the kind of like creative notes you're giving in the, in the post process, um, which is again, that, editing process is just rewriting the story, right? You're just writing that story for the third time. Yeah. It's interesting too, because I just, I had this vision in my head and it may not be at all, but what actually happens, but I got this vision in my head of like looking at a script and it says like 19 Blackhawk helicopters come over and blow things up. And you're like, not only cannot afford that, now we got to change the tone of the script a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if I were to have seen that in a script, it's not if you look at the kinds of films I've worked on, yeah. you would know that I would see a script like that and be like, well, it's probably yeah. not my kind of script anyway. I probably wouldn't produce a script like that. Right. But I do think, you know, it, what's interesting is um, what, what I have found is that the answer isn't always, oh, we can't do this because it seems hard. Mm-hmm. I have found really creative directors and there's amazing things that they can do with technology now. So like explosions don't scare me as much anymore because you don't have to have like, you know, they can do some realistic things in in after effects and whatever. So like there are some things that used to be non-starters that you couldn't do that, that they may have, you know, easier solutions nowadays um, and, and things that you can still tackle. I think the the bigger things are always like, are there kids? Is there sex that needs to be filmed in a private way and that feels safe? What other safety stunt things are happening? You know, cars are always a big deal. So it's, those are the things more, I think that you can't get around with visual effects that like, those are the, the elements that you have to be careful of, but it should never be a no I think as I always start a relationship with a director, especially as a line producer, which is a very different hat Mm -hmm. than a a creative producer who's on a project from start to finish, which is like 10 years, a line producer is only on a project for like the few months leading up to production through production and they wrap the film and they go. And you still have a lot of impact on the creative and the idea of like coming out creative that way is like, okay, well, let's identify the five most important things in this film creatively. Hmm. And then like, we know that those have to stay on the table somehow with the budget and the schedule. And then everything else is negotiable. And we all have to be on the same page that like everything from there is negotiable about how we tackle that. Right. And I, I have found that like, it's never always five, right? The director usually wants 10 or seven or whatever it is, but like you settle on like, what are the main things we have to have yeah. that must go right in order to tell this story. And then everything else we all have to be flexible with because if we don't get that cherry apple red <laughs> classic car, oh, yeah. like we may not like, do we have to have that to tell the story because this is Christine oh, yeah. or can we have something different? And it, it just has to be, you know, period and this and that, like, those are the things that you have to, you know, you have to ascertain everything should be driven from the creative though. Like right. even when you're line producing it, sh- everything should be driven from the creative and sure. 
And unfortunately, producers get a bad rap for like being the no people, because a lot of times you do have to be the final no. Um, but a lot of a lot of negotiation and discussion and trying to get to a yes should happen before you ever get to a no. Right. Yeah. That's a lot of negotiation from what I understand. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I will say this, too, because you know, as a creative myself, I've kind of been on the other end of that a little bit as a musician. And yeah. um, so you have to talk to creatives in a different way, obviously, than you have to do, quote unquote, normal human beings sometimes. Yeah. And yeah. I know that. And I know that language. It's like therapy in a way. It's like you got to kind of weave around and duck and weave a little bit, but to get your point across, to convince an artist to do something, which is like Jedi mind shit sometimes. Yeah. That's weird. I haven't ever felt that, um, maybe not to that extreme, but I do think you have to have, um, there's like an intimacy with your relationship. There has to be a trust, I Correct. guess, it's more less than intimacy. There has to be a trust. Absolutely. I think in terms of like, talking creatively about scripts though like that's what I learned at Columbia I learned that language so I had that common vocabulary as a way to talk script with people uh -huh. there's difference of talking script with people and then like trusting that everybody's on the same page to try and achieve the story that Correct. we're all signing up for I think that's the like intimacy and and special space that you have to create with whomever you're working with. And that's, that can be difficult. I've never really thought of it as like needing a different language or, or a different like mind set, oh. but I could see that too, for some people, for sure. I've been very fortunate that every director I've worked with has been, you know, has, has been great in terms of that back and forth relationships. So. That's fantastic. I, I, I actually, uh, the feather in my cap one time was that I got, I got Neil Young to do something and that's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like some internet thing I've been, but he trusted me. And that's it. That's the thing. That's exactly how I got it done. Cause I said, you might want to do this. And you know, he ended up doing it. Um, I want to kind of move on if I can. Yeah. Your, so your projects, you know, so I, you know, I've looked at Nor'easter, uh, you know, Heartlock and you mentioned Dead Man's Burden. Um, I want to get to a couple other ones in a second, but it's interesting too, because there's these really great themes that I've noticing that you're attracted to. And that's why I was asking that first question in the first place, because clearly there's something in it that you said yes to, I would imagine. And it was, you know, with the heart lock, you know, there's just like this Romeo and Juliet story of like star-crossed lovers and um, the Nor'easter thing looked like, uh, like his struggle of faith with like the laws yeah. of the universe and yeah. the dead man's burden is a great throwback, you know, classic Western thing. Um, and the Uncorked thing was interesting because I kind of realized that it's really, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, actually, first of all, how the hell do I say sommelier? How do you say that? Sommelier. Sommelier. Thank you very much. <laughs> this, this interview has already proven great for me already. Thank you. Um, so, but no, but I realize that it's really about themes of like family and generational changes. Mm. You know, generational yeah. generational transmissions, which is a big thing for me because sometimes you, I always talk about this and we see, get your thoughts on this actually, but I say that when we have, like someone dies in a family, right? You get the heirloom, you get the car, you get the boat, you get the cash. In these kind of things, when a generational changes, it's really generational transmissions, which is really the emotional heirlooms that we get when we're handed down. Mm, right? Yeah. Connection, family. Does that, does that fly? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that the reasons I chose to do projects early in my career were very different than the reasons I chose to do projects later in my, the themes and needs on my part changed. Of course. So Nor'easter 
was about kind of struggling with faith when a priest is put in a, in a difficult situation. And the, the, the challenge as a producer in that was that we shot on an island off the coast of Maine in February. So um, that was a, a huge challenge. And then I went from that and said, well, I don't want to do anything like that. I want to do something totally different. So that's when I went and did a Western in the high desert of New Mexico and did Dead Man's Burden. And then I was done with that and I wanted to do something super different. So then I went and did a gorilla subway film with mm-hmm. an autistic kid who was, um, who was lovely, but also actually on the spectrum as our lead actor and oh, doing wow. something a little more gorilla style. And then went from that and did Heartlock. So like things, you know, over the, and then of course went and did Moonlight and did, so by the time I got to Moonlight, um, I had been able, I got my agents, which was helpful. And I was able to start making decisions of like, I wanted to start um, doing stories where I was uplifting um, voices of people who, Yes. I don't want to say marginalized and I don't want to say represented, but I, I want to say that like, I want to be able to uplift voices of people who don't normally get Have heard. Yeah. And um, I was a big fan of Barry's Medicine for Melancholy and watched that when I was in grad school. And so I read Moonlight and was like, if anybody doesn't want to do this, like, don't, you're crazy. No. Um, but like making Moonlight, nobody thought making Moonlight was what it what it became, right? We made it as like a tiny indie film sure. with no, you know, nobody was a big star. I mean, Naomi Harris is a big star, but like there weren't a okay. huge amount of big stars. It was a tiny, tiny production and shoe, shoe, shoe string budget. But like you did. So I went from this, you know, beautiful story in Miami of looking at both LGBTQ themes and looking at kind of African American stories and, and then went from that to First Match, which I was a creative producer on and worked with that team for a very long time to get that film imagined. And yeah. that was about a young girl in the foster system, a young Black girl in the foster system trying to reconnect with her father as he is released from prison and got to work with some amazing people on that and went from that and did Encore. Oh, no, I did A Kid Like Jake then, which mm-hmm. was an LGBTQ mm-hmm. theme in terms about a transge- potentially transgendered child. Um, which was a play, a stage play, and then went from there into Uncorked. And then when, and Uncorked was really with Prentice, what I appreciated was he was trying to show what he was saying was like, this is a normal average Black family doing dealing with life as it comes to them. Mm-hmm. And that's their, you know, that was what was special about it was that it was trying to be normalizing, um, which was beautiful. And then from there, I took a total right turn and went into documentaries, which has been uh, a wonderful turn. And so I feel like over the course of my, you know, I made my early career, I really just wanted to work on different things because I wanted to prove how I was as a producer working on very different kinds of stories and different kinds of producing challenges. And then I wanted to start working on films where I could uplift the right voices that I felt were special. So I was able to work on those films. And now I'm, I have worked the last couple of years in documentary, which was a treat has been a treat. I'm no longer in documentaries. I'm doing something different that I can't talk about, but (laughs) I'll be able to talk about it. You haven't heard first. (laughs) Um, But like, it's, you know, I think your, your choices of what you're attracted to in the story changes with your career. 
Of course, it I don't does. even know if that answers your original no. question. But... No, it absolutely does. Absolutely. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> I'm done. No, that was perfect. Um, you know, I, I kind of want to go back, actually, to the stand clear of the closing doors. Yeah. Okay. First of all, out of the gate, I have to say this. In the trailer, there's that shot of the plane going through and the doves. I know you know what I'm talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. The plane you don't? going through. And oh my the God. Dove. There's a, there's like a white plane overhead that's flying and there's doves that are flying like clearly way underneath the plane. But yeah. the way the perspective is, it just, it's an amazing shot. That's all. Yeah. You know, we just shot that out. I mean, we were filming in Rockaway for Rockaway. So we've filmed that out by the airport out there. Gorgeous shot. Oh, well, I'm glad you like it. Sam is a very, very talented filmmaker. He was a cinematographer. I learned a very valuable lesson from him in visual storytelling, which is a cinematographer should be able to give you a beautiful picture no matter what camera he has in his hands and what lights he has at his disposable, his or her disposal, I should say, um, that they should be able to make you a beautiful great picture. That's a great point. Yeah, that that shot is one for the ages. <laughs> I'm not just saying well, that. Like, it's I'm really glad great. that you like that shot. Oh, it's brilliant. <laughs> The thing, the thing specifically that I did want to talk about that just, just for our, maybe a little bit is the autism thing. It's, it's yeah. amazing too that you guys casted, uh, a, a kid who's on the spectrum because yeah. it, it kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about helping out the voices that may not have a voice per se or yeah. any of that. And mental health is a giant thing for me and especially normalizing it. I, I don't, maybe it's not the right word necessarily, yeah. but to not make people afraid of it. I mean, I have my yeah. own. I mean, I'm bipolar and I tell everybody that because yeah. I want people to, I mean, I'm managed, but I, I want people to know about it. Not, I don't yeah. run around and screaming on it, obviously, but if someone asks, I'm more than happy to, sh to share my experience. So as someone with mental illness, watching that portrayal, I thought was fantastic, beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. I think that it was, in, we talked a lot in the casting process. I, they had already identified the actor who, um, who, who played the lead. Um, but we talked a lot about like, how are we going to surround this young, because um, Sam had made a short film and with the lead actor. Um, and so then he realized he wanted to create a whole feature around him. And so it was like, how are you going to surround this young man? He was a young teenager at the time um, with other cast members and just crew and an environment, how are you going to create it so that he can, in essence, be his beautiful self and we can just capture him, right? The way, the way he is acting, but really bringing his, his whole self to, to the character and to the role and, and having to act as little as possible. And, um, and it was, you know, any indoor scenes that we filmed, those were all filmed literally with nobody, just the camera person and Sam. Everybody had to be outside the mm -hmm. set. Like there was nobody standing by behind. Usually if you're on set, there's like 20, 50, sure. 70 people around the camera. Sure. And in this space, we really wanted to protect like his attention and his yes. safety. safety. Um, and, yeah. and that came from Sam, right? And And then surrounding him with actor other actors who would also help him kind of carry that role and help carry the load for him um and help him feel safe in kind of a very scary thing i i would say that that film um 
we were filming in Far Rockaway and we mm. were doing our first day of subway filming when Hurricane Sandy hit New really? York. Really? Yes. So we all evacuated. Um, we were in Far Rockaway, which was decimated. The lead and his mother came to stay with me in my farmhouse upstate. Um, where I actually lived. I didn't live in Far Far Rockaway. (laughs) And we kind of all evacuated. And then we just had to stop filming. And we came back and did like a week's worth of filming. First, we had to dig out Far Rockaway. These were the people that we, that community we had been in. So we did a lot of actual like aid work in those first weeks right after. And dug out the director's house and did all this work. But like we had to then bring the actors back to finish the film in very, very different, disparate ways. And doing that to also for this young man to like create both some like cohesiveness in a way where you're going back and forth now to Florida, you're not actually in the space of the movie all the time, like to do that in a safe way, um, you know, and, and to be filming on the subway, we, we just, in the end, all the subway stuff was filmed with just like a crew of five people, everybody had two bags and I had the actor and we had, you know, all just for 12 hours in the subway, just a few of us. So it, it was a challenging movie. And the challenge there was not just like the gorilla nature of it, but also just protecting this young man as much I, as you I got to say, I love the fact that you protected him. That very, I don't know about you, but to me, that seems extremely rare for a lot of these situations. So good on you. Um, seriously, I, I, that's, that's incredible to hear because that's not really that common. And again, as somebody who, I mean, anybody who's mentally ill, I consider my brother a sister because we're in that club, you know? Yeah, yeah. So good work. So I was, it's funny. I was talking to another, um, another podcast interview I did and, uh, they were a director mm-hmm. and, uh, they were explaining that mid-level movies are harder to get made these days. Mm. Is that kind of true from your experience or what do you, what do you think about that? I mean, it was, I think it was because of, you know, the tent poles and the superheroes and. Yeah. So I was just talking about this with somebody also yesterday that it's, yeah, I don't even like, I don't live in the world of tent pole movies. So yes, you have those big studio movies, but then you Mm -hmm. have the other studios like a Netflix or a Hulu that like nobody, it seems like people don't really want to do any budgets below 15 to 20 million, really Mm -hmm. 20 million. So you either are doing these teeny tiny films that are like one and a half million, two million dollars where everybody loses years off the end of their life to make them because they're just so stressful and you have no money. And, um, or you somehow work in the union world and you're able to get, but the leap, like there's a huge gap there and it's a very big leap and only a few will be able to make that leap um, and get kind of their next film off the ground at a, a different budget level. And it just didn't used to be that way. 10 years ago, I feel like you, there were a lot of films being made in that tier two, tier three level, which forgive me, that is like a industry speak. That was inside baseball. You lost me. It used to be, it's changed a little bit, but it's somewhere between five and $10 million and then 10 to $15 million are the kind of tier two, three. I mean, they've kind of shifted higher a little bit now given inflation, I guess, but, um, but like those 10 to $15 million film or five to $15 million films, which are like mid-level films, they're just very hard to get made. And the, the thing is like the money right now that's out there for getting films made is, are these streamers. Like they're now the new studios. So it's just, it's, it has become, um, yeah, it's become difficult. And without theatrical as a lost leader and trying to 
you know, streamers don't want to buy things that aren't their own original content. So like the risk of making a $8 million mid-level movie and nobody picks it up because it's not an original of their creation where they've had Mm -hmm. a hand in the creative and, and all of that is, it's it's just a very big risk for people nowadays. And it's a shame because there's a lot of stories that are being lost that way. Yeah. I've, I've noticed that. I mean, because as you and I both did work at the video store, so you get exposed to the mid-level a lot. At least I did when I was a kid. And, um, but that kind of dovetails into, uh, I'll wrap this up in a little bit, maybe, but it kind of dovetails into another little prediction that I have and what bounces off you. It's a, it's a horrifying prediction that I have, but I, th- I think I might be right. And that is that movie theaters are going to go the way of record stores because record stores now are a niche thing, niche thing, right? And it's, yeah. you only go to record stores and people shop there for like, you know, big dollar items, like a thousand dollar Lou Reed record that no one ever had or that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, Right, because my little theory is that because of the pandemic, could, first of all, I go to movies all the time, every week. When when things kind of opened up about six months ago, I still go every week. But okay. as you know, there's nobody in those theaters anymore. Yeah. And yeah. it's it's clear as a bell that because of the pandemic, people sat around, saw their giant television they weren't watching, and said, oh, I don't need to pay for parking. I don't need to pay for popcorn. I don't need to pay for this. So they just sit at home. And last thing I will say about this for your thoughts is, I've been seeing advertising. They're so clear from the from the movie th- or from the uh, the theater industry, which is like, see it the way it was supposed to be seen, like on a giant screen with Dolby and yeah. I don't know what's going to work. Yeah, I think you know. I think if you have event based things, uh, it really depends on like the budget level you're talking about or the kinds of films that you're trying to True. do. Because like documentaries, you're trying to activate people in a different way. So if you can do event based screenings in theaters. I think that's really helpful. I think, I don't know if they're going to go the way of the record store. I have to say that I, I, we have a a vinyl collection. I've been told a small one, Um, but a vinyl collection nonetheless. And we're always looking for like vintage stuff. That's not, you know, that's in, in in good shape. I, I don't buy any new vinyl and I, I'm not looking to spend a lot of money on my vinyl, but I'm, I want, mostly I'm looking for memories when I'm looking um, at record shops, Fair but point. I understand the, the, the lot, the thought of like that movies might be like movie theater, theater going might be a dying breed. I just think that like, to me, it's going to be right sized. I, I have to say I'm, I, and I do say this to people I know all the time. Like I'm one of the people <laughs> that is eroding my own indus- industry. Cause I prefer to watch things at home. Um, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't actually prefer to go to the movie theater to watch my movies, but I also, you know, I, I, I think a lot of the way people consume stuff is different and we have to meet people where they're at. And I think theaters will never go away because there will always be people like you who love the theater sure. experience. Yeah. Um, but like, there are also people who want to get their stories in, I don't know. I don't, I'm not on TikTok, but like a minute and a half chunks. Like, I don't know, like storytelling is different and, and, I think the the job of the artist and the director, the producer, whatever, is to like, how are you accessing your audience and how can they get your story? And then work, that, you know, right. like make yeah. that meet somehow. Work, work within the medium. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. like play to your strengths. Working in documentary, I've been exposed to just how you can engage in an audience. And it's not that my other films didn't try and engage in their audiences in different ways, but like, Netflix has an algorithm. They say their movies will find the audience. 
other than outside of that, you have to find your audience. And I have found a new appreciation for finding an audience and trying to activate that with documentary. But we were doing very similar things. We just weren't calling them impact campaigns with my early like low budget films where you're trying to find the like, who's the Western audience? Who's this, sure. you know, like trying to find those audiences. That makes that makes perfect sense. Which Again, I keep saying dovetail. Should I say something? What's another word that I'm trying to use here? You tell oh, me. Gosh. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm not a thesaurus. I'm not sure, but I use dovetail again. It's fine. <laughs> are you sure? Is that allowed? Okay, good. So to dovetail again, uh, I really do want to talk about, first of all, I'm a doc nerd. I learned about docs when I was at the, at the video store, right? Yeah. So I'm a giant doc guy. And I, I thought it was, I really want you to kind of talk a, at least a little bit about the inhospitable, uh, not only the documentary process, but because that's and talk about storytelling when you're doing a doc, like that's kind of the thing, but also talk about what you're talking about. Cause that healthcare system stuff, my God. Yeah. Oops. And I mean, inhospitable. Um, so inhospitable is about uh, the hospital's role in our rising cost of healthcare, because yep. we always talk about um, pharma and we always talk about insurance, but nobody talks about hospitals and hospitals are actually, the number one impact on the rising cost of healthcare. So it's on the festival circuit right now, and hopefully we'll have distribution soon with an update. And the thing, and I have another doc just finished uh, called Exclusion U, which is about higher education and elite education uh, in the United States, focused on the Ivy League and kind of the ties between their murky financials and their admissions processes. Um, and so both of those films are what they call like social impact films or their social justice films are trying to like activate an audience to do something and they were very different ways of making it inhospitable was made before covid their last day of filming was like the first day of covid wow. we had to figure out how to incorporate covid into a film about hospitals because you can't make a hospital oh, film. that's right and 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 covid has just exacerbated all of the issues that are um, examined in the film sure. and so um yeah. And then the other film was made during COVID. Inhospitable has verite, right? Where you're finding the story, you're following people, mm -hmm. they're following a, a ticking time clock of breakup of a healthcare system and, and how that's going to impact the patients. And so there was a lot of verite. We couldn't follow any students, right? Like you can't follow people around. There's no, sure. there's no protests or very few happening during COVID. And so it was a very different kind of film that you had to tackle in a very different way in terms of storytelling. And how do you get the point across and how do you humanize something that is really can be wonky at times, right? Healthcare and higher education and financials, like that's wonky stuff. Always trying to put a human face on it. And both of those directors, that was always their mission was like, how am I humanizing this information that I want people to care about? Because that just like narrative films, you have to be able to tap into a character that you, that you can like, align with, align with bingo. And, and then they take you through the story. And that's the same thing in documentary. That's exactly right. Yeah. I was actually just talking, I just had one done with a guy who did a, um, he did a Kent state documentary and, mm. and, and, you yeah. know, and, you know, actually tell me, tell me this because someone mentioned to me, cause I got an idea for one, but they said that they're like, forget your narrative that you're thinking of just shoot. And then that'll, then the pieces will, will form a narrative basically. Yeah, I mean, I think there is something to be said for you have to have an outline of what you're trying to go for and who you think will help you tell that story. And then with both of these directors that I worked with saw, we really have to be open to what comes up. 
and being able to follow something else because you don't know if that's really the gem that you needed to follow all along. And so that's for sure a big part of the process. Yeah, that's uh, that's what I hear. So um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. So we're going to do a couple more fun things. Number one, and okay. I just thought of this, so we'll see what we'll see where this goes. Okay. Give me your five favorite movies. Oh no, you can't ask a film. Yes, I can. <laughs> I, I didn't say one, did I? I thought one. I'm like, no, I'm gonna give her three. I'm gonna give her top five. Five, give her five. Top yeah. five. Um, I can give you some in no particular order. Please. I would say um, uh, Jumping Jack Flash, Funny Girl, um, Godfather Part One and Two, Countess One, and um, that's three. Got two more. Uh, I got two more. Come on. Jeez. Oh, it's so tough. Um, <laughs> you're on the, you're on point here. I, I don't know. I guess I have, okay. back, I have to put back to the future in there because it was one of my early sure. inspirations and um, I'll Throw leave it money. at four. I'll leave it at four. I'll leave it at yeah, four. Okay, four. <laughs> <laughs> four it is. P.S. By the way, first of all, I think it's interesting that you didn't include Godfather three in that. Understood. No. Completely yeah. understood. <laughs> completely understood. No, what is that line? Lip Pacino's like, he's like, they're tearing me up. Where, what is it? Yeah, um, they, every time I get out, I think I'm out. They, they pull me back. They in. pull me back in. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but a jumping Jack flash, the Whitby Goldberg movie. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. I know every line in that. I've movie. never heard anybody say that. About that. I know nobody usually does. And funny girl, who's going to like quote a Barbara Streisand movie from the sixties. But I love that movie. Funny so girl is amazing, but yeah. you, you must admit that's an odd one. It is. All of them are odd, and they're all beautiful. <laughs> I found. I just remembered. I saw that in the theaters. I saw Jimmy Jack Flash in the theater. Because right. Because at one point, right. Because at one point, Bobby Goldberg is listening to the Rolling Stones, and she says, "Like, speak English, Mick." Yeah, Mick, 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 speak English. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. I can add um, the Breakfast Club. That'll be my number five. The Breakfast the what? Club. The Breakfast Club. Oh my God! Throw a little John Hughes in there. Oh my God! I actually interviewed the editor of a lot of the John Hughes movies. Oh great. And it, I just dorked out, but the Breakfast Club, holy crap! Like, well, first of all, the casting on that done right. Yeah, like, yeah, every every person, Mila Estevez and Judd Nelson. Yeah. My future ex-wife will always be Molly Greenwald. Um, <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Yeah, that's that would be defined me when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, same. All of those movies at some point in my life defined me in some way. High five to you! High okay. five to you! Well <laughs> Well, this has been great. Uh, here's the way I want to end this, and because I, I always forget in the intros uh, when we when we were first chatting earlier to say, "Oh, we're going to hang up the phone, and then we're going to talk after." Okay, I'm not going to hang up the phone, but we're going to like. So yeah. here's the deal. Here's the deal. All right, we're going to pretend that we're done. We're going to yeah. say our goodbyes. You're going to act. I'm going to act, and then I'm not going to hang up. Correct. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Let me let me, let me do the intro. Let me set this up. Okay. okay. Here we go. All right, everybody. Thank you so much uh, for listening. Uh, Veronica, I've had a wonderful time chatting with you about, God, documentaries and Jumping Jack Flash and movies that no one ever saw. Um, we've had a good time. Please say goodbye to everybody and myself and take care, everybody. Go ahead. Thank you so much. This was a, a fun 45 minutes. Excellent. Okay. And one, two, three, quote unquote, click. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.